You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Helen Joyce, it's good to see you. You too. Uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, the Meaning of Life.tv and Bloggingheads.tv audience. Uh, this is the Sophia program. I'm Daniel Kaufman. Host, I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I edit an online magazine called The Electric Agora, and um, uh, Sophia is available on both streaming, video, and audio podcasts. I'm here with Helen, Doctor Helen Joyce, um, who I'm just going to describe as being at The Economist magazine. But the reason I'm giving such a terse description is that her background and the road by which she got to where she is now is so interesting, I would rather that she told it. Um, so, Helen, could you say if you say, say sort of give us your little arc story? Okay, I don't think you know all of it, actually, Daniel. I probably don't. I tend, to leave out, I tend to leave out the very first bit because it's so weird. I left school at 16 to train to be a dancer and uh, then realized that that wasn't quite going to work out when I was about 18, um, dropped out of dancing school, and I had missed my chance to apply under the standard procedure for university in Ireland by that point. Um, it's done as a centralized system, so I could apply for only one course, and I wouldn't be considered until the second round. So massive in my favorite subject in school, so I applied to do mathematics, and I didn't get in because the course was filled in the first round. And then I got in when somebody dropped out two weeks into term and really liked it. So I did my mathematics degree at Trinity College Dublin. Then I went and did a master's in Cambridge. And then I did my PhD in maths in University College London. And then I did not one, but two postdocs, one in Wales and one in Finland. At which point, slow learner, I decided I didn't want to be an academic after all. Oh, <laughs> 11 years. That That's was 11 a lot years. of labor. <laughs> oh and it was gosh. my second attempt too after dancing. Uh, and then I, um, but I did a segue that was quite productive. I moved into public understanding of maths and I ended up working at a project at the University of Cambridge, which was about getting kids more interested in maths and also general public audience, you know, thinking that maths was fun and interesting and that sort of thing. So I used to visit schools and I edited a, an online magazine about mathematics for the general public. Then I started editing a magazine about statistics for the Royal Statistical Society. And then I saw in a fateful day, I saw an ad for someone to write for The Economist, which I was a subscriber to. So I applied to that. And uh, lo and behold, I became the education correspondent of The Economist in 2005. So I did that for five years. Then I went to Brazil and I was our Brazil correspondent based in Sao Paulo for four years. Then I edited our international section for I think about four years, and for the last two, I've edited the finance and economic section. So that's my day job. I'm actually on sabbatical. <laughs> and how did you, I mean, you're, what are you, like 30? How did you do this? How did you, how did you, <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm in my 50s. I'm in my 50s. <laughs> um, I like change. Um, <laughs> that's Every really, step seemed rational at the time. That's really remarkable. It's also a, a pretty remarkable combination of skills because my general experience has been that the arts people are not very good at the maths and sciences and the maths and science people aren't very good at the arts. Is there, is every, is it less um, segregated that way in Ireland? Are people? Well, I think that, that mathemat mathematicians are often musicians. That I've so, seen that. Yeah. I've yeah. seen that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the music, the, the dance and maths, I suppose is more unusual. Um, but a lot of people in maths, I mean, you know, when I was at UCL, I knew Tim Gowers who won the fields medal a couple of years later. And I mean, he was a good enough jazz, jazz pianist that he considered being a musician. 
Huh. So, yeah, my daughter is applying to universities for vocal performance opera, and um, well, I tell her to do math as a backup. He dislikes math intensely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do any math anymore, so you know, the it's useful. Torment to her. Um, God um, bless her. Um, <laughs> um, so that's so, where I am now. That's uh, that's the st- the stage by where I've got, and I am on sabbatical from the finance and economic section of the Economist to write a book about gender identity. So you know, there's another twist. Right. So that's actually before we actually get into the substance of it i always thought of sabbaticals as things that that academics do what is, is that a thing that one takes a sabbatical and one one's con- from being an editor in a magazine and um, a lot of journalists take a bit of unpaid time off to write books a lot of journalists write books the job and is I mean, either, for you when you come back yeah no when i say sabbatical i don't get a year off i get a couple of months off and i'm going to have to try and do the rest of it you know in my spare time so the economist has been great the economist is pretty good at giving people say three months Okay. to 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 okay. really crack on with the book. Okay. A lot of my colleagues have written books. I'm kind of a laggard. Right. Yes. Journalists do write, of course, write books, yeah. and and yeah. and editors write books. And um, it just never occurred to me that they take sabbaticals in order to do so. But it makes it makes sense. But these are unpaid sabbaticals. I'm correct. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Not like an academic gets paid for half no, of no, no. year. Yeah. No, you don't know where you're born in academia. You really don't. Oh no! Listen, I'm the, I, I can. Every time academics complain about their workload, it makes me actually really annoyed because <laughs> we do have pretty much the most luxurious jobs. And I've worked in like manual labor. I mean, I've worked like in restaurants and like you know, wash dishes and and I just it, it always annoys me. I mean, we get four months a year off. I teach mm-hmm. two days a week. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just it's not it's not it's not heavy labor. Um, um, and sabbaticals are really luxurious. Um, so you're writing a book about gender identity and um, we'll get into some of the details of it, but just, I wanted to just sort of let the audience know that this is kind of the way that you and I came to know each other is, is through the social media conversations surrounding this issue, um, especially as it's playing out in the UK. Um, um, I sort of um, got into it um when I saw a person who I know very well uh, for for years and who I used to go to conferences uh, with um, um, uh, Kathleen Stock, um, and I saw her just getting the crap eaten out of her online for for engaging in what struck me as her duty as a citizen of a of a country to engage in the political uh, discourse, and so that's sort of how I got into it by accident. And um, then I met all these people through it. So you know, I've done one of these dialogues with Jane Claire Jones. Who I sort of met the same way, um, and um, now I'm doing one with you. Um, wh- talk a little bit just about um, what what led you to want to do the book, and then what what the book's going to look like. What, what what sort of give us a sketch of what the what the book's going to. Sure. So the reason I got interested in it was, you know, as journalists do get interested in things, I was asked to write an article about it. It was literally, you know, gosh, this is strange. Kids have started to say that they're trans or that they're non-binary. Um, what's that all about? And I had no idea. Um, you know, my, my vague sense was that this was the latest liberation movement that, um, you know, we had achieved many other things. We'd achieved, you know, women's vote, we'd achieved black liberation, we'd achieved same-sex marriage, and now it was the turn of trans people. I understood trans people to be um, people who suffered extremely greatly, who had some, I, I didn't know the details, but maybe some you know, medical condition that meant that there was a total mismatch and that you'd have to have surgery and things like that. I hadn't given it any thought. And I was quite astonished when I discovered that um, you know, that was a very old-fashioned sort of view of what it meant to be trans and that now there's a sort of a fast-emerging orthodoxy 
that we have a thing that you might call a sexed soul, a gender identity, and that that thing is the thing that makes you a man or a woman, and that it's so passe to even mention the fact that some people are male or female. And, you know, I'm old enough that um, I've been through you know, the sorts of experiences that mark female bodies as rather different from male ones. You know, I've given yeah, birth. Me too, I'm, me too. Yeah, currently going through menopause, you know. My and, wife uh, is going through menopause, and then, of course, I'm going through all the things that males go through as they get enlarged prostate. Yeah. I mean, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So it seems um, extraordinary that we have um, that we have, have yeah. tried to, or that it's now, like, almost bigoted to talk about these things, you know, to say that men and women are different. I, I mean, one of the things I was thinking just this morning, like, how to put this, but I think separate but equal has got a bad rap for very obvious reasons. And... As I'm writing the book, I'm realizing that this is the realm of terrible, terrible analogies. Yeah. So, you know, because separate but equal was a total disaster when we talked about black and white people, I mean, it didn't mean equal at all. And why should they be separate anyway? I mean, those are very trivial differences between people. Well, actually, males and females really are separate. It's two very separate groups of people. Non-trivial yes. difference, yeah. Yeah, and non-overlapping. Like, really, you know, a male cannot be a female and a female cannot be a male. These are not interpenetrating groups at all. No. And in some ways, on occasion, they need to be separate. Um, you know, it's a minor number of situations, but they're non-trivial. So I was very surprised. I was very surprised as I wrote about it. I was very surprised when I interviewed people like Kathleen to discover how pathetically grateful they were that someone was willing to talk to them about this issue. And then I was extremely surprised to discover that I wasn't meant to talk to people like her. I mean, as you know, she's a lovely and polite and, you know, engaging, you know, person with deep, profound insights into lots of different things. And a very good philosopher. I mean, prior to her fading into this, she was very distinguished within the field of aesthetics. I mean, that's how I know her. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a little... And she's so non-aggressive in the way that she... Um, I know. But, I mean, she's a hate figure. You know, it's quite extraordinary to meet somebody who is regarded by quite large numbers of students as, you know, quite literally on a par with the worst white supremacist Nazi bigots. They think yeah. that they really think she's like that. So all of these things just set my journalism senses tingling because there's something very odd happening. And the journalists are meant to write about the things that people don't want them to write about. You're not meant to be scared off these topics. So, I mean, to sort of fast forward, I've written about this, uh, you know, for various outlets, in fact, like three or four different magazines. And, um, you know, each time the response, again, still astonishes me. And it still astonishes me what we're not allowed to take for granted anymore. Like, I was astonished to have to explain to people that um, there's a reason for segregation between the sexes in sport. I was very surprised to have to say to people, well, obviously, you don't want... Um, you know, males and women's prisons, and to have people respond as if I was saying, you know, well, obviously black people are inferior, or, you know, it would be best if the Jews were exterminated or something. I mean, these things were sort of being treated as if they were on a par. And I hadn't even known that anybody didn't know why we segregate women and men in sport. Everybody knew that. I'm 52 years old, and... Likewise. (laughs) Until the last five minutes... No, I know. No one I could even think of would ever wonder why... In a middle school, the boys' room and the, the boys' bathroom and the girls' bathroom are separate. I mean, I, no one, yeah. I, I, no one ever even spent a second wondering why, because no, it was know. so bloody obvious why. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, it turned out to a lot of people it wasn't. You know, um, a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, a small number of people, but a non-negligible number of people were from, I'd say, about the nineteen nineties and possibly a bit earlier, uh, starting to develop theories in which that was not obvious. Is that true? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look back at the sort of the 1990s and queer theory and even, Mm. you know, the the strands of, I mean, I'm not a philosopher, which is why I'm nervous about this conversation. But, you know, when I look back at people saying that you can argue, I found an article from the 1980s about post-structuralism and about the way that some practitioners would argue that everything was basically its opposite is the way that I put it. I mean, I have no, I have no time for this sort of stuff. I really don't. But I do know what a logical argument is. I mean, I do have that PhD in mathematics and it wasn't in logic. It was in a different branch, but I do know when people are doing a bait and switch, you know, using the same term in two different ways or saying A implies B, therefore B implies A, Um, you know, and, and these are the sorts of things they were doing. And they're just word tricks, and asking questions instead of giving answers, like saying, you know, therefore, perhaps it is the case that. Well, no, it isn't the case that. You've just said perhaps. You've just said something untrue with perhaps before it. Yeah. I mean, one that really stuck in my mind. I don't know why this example stuck in my mind, but it was somebody who did an entire paper arguing that every gay person who came out of the closet pushed other gay people further back into the closet. I mean, this is just nonsense. I mean, this is an empirical statement, and it's wrong. It's just wrong. So why the hell a whole paper that this made somebody's reputation in it? It's this sort of calling everything its opposite, everything interpenetrating, nothing having you know separate characteristics, nothing being well defined. I mean, in maths, everything has to be well defined before you can progress. Yeah, it sounds to me like I'm assuming that in doing whatever research you did, you 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 ran into Judith Butler, I guess probably. Yes, I did. I did exactly. The whole idea that sort of. um, it seems to me, I mean, people are not, and I'm not going to, I know you're not a philosopher, so I'm not going to push, I'm go very deep into this, but it does seem to me that um, there is a, that, that she sort of represents intellectually, and then this movement now represents politically a fundamentally different approach to questions of civil rights activism, right? And so for her, activism is all about affirming various performances, right? Mm. Rather than mm. overcoming um, materially based um, uh, obstacles um, 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 uh, because of societal uh, prejudices around those material material facts, right? And so, you know, in the case of uh, uh, black liberation, it has to do with the material fact of skin color and the fact that, that people, um, 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 for some reason, think that that's significant, right? Um, in the case of, of, of traditional feminism, it was because of f- female bodiedness and and the fact that people thought that that was in some sense significant in the moral and political senses. Uh, of course, they are significant in other senses, as we both believe. Uh-huh. Um, but that now... It's 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 a on a fundamentally different footing now. It's not really about that anymore. Um, as a matter of fact, it seems to me that the gender activism is all about rejecting the idea that there are any material realities. This is entirely exactly. about this is entire, and that's why I, I actually published an essay some a while ago arguing that this actually represents the end of the traditional civil rights. And I'm worried that it's going to wind up breaking up the civil rights coalition because this is fundamentally strikes me as essentially neoliberal. What it essentially is, is I have the right to define myself to the last dot and everyone else must obey, right? Everyone else must, must in a sense, affirm my self-identification. It's like there's nothing else that's important about you. It's like, um, (laughs) it's, you know, I I don't know. I never use the word neoliberal because I never know what the other person means by it. It's one of those boogie words that, you know, everyone different thinks different things about it. What I'd say is that it's a profoundly nihilistic and pessimistic view 
you know, nothing can be made better. We can't say the world isn't half fixed yet, but, I, I, you know, it can get more fixed. It doesn't set out goals. Like, I mean, the goal of, you know, black liberation movements were things like end the Jim Crow laws. Right. You know, it was specific things, and you could say, I've achieved that. That isn't everything, but it's something. Get women the vote. Yeah. Allow women to own homes. Yeah. And, um, you know, then there were more nebulous things like with domestic violence. I mean, you know, we're never going to end domestic violence in the sense that we're never going to end any evil that can be done right. by individuals. But you could imagine steps that you would take towards that higher sentencing, training for police, refuges, whatever. Those things were positive optimistic, materialistic, empirical things that people set out to do. And the things that can be affected by law and public policy, right? Yes. This is all about affirming affirming people's self-image. And about by empiricism as well, that you would think, well, there are three policies, you know, how much would they cost, what would they achieve, might one of them be better than another, Uh, you know, we could try something and it wouldn't work, we'd try something else. And in a way, if people didn't agree with you, that didn't matter. Like, um, there's a famous quote, I can't remember who said it, and I'm going to get it a bit wrong, but it was, you know, feminism is the practice of supporting all female people, whether they agree with you or not, whether they are nice or not. You know, I don't want any women murdered. I don't want any women raped. It doesn't really matter if they're women I don't agree with and anything else. I feel a solidarity with other women, and I wish to work towards a world in which women suffer less in these specific ways. And then there's the famous Judith Butler quote where she says that gender is a performance, is an imitation for which there is no original. Sorry, that's just bollocks. That's just words. I mean, there isn't, there's no such thing as an imitation for which there's no original. You've just been smart and said, you know, this is a green that is actually a red. No, it isn't. There is no such thing. I'm that's, sorry. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, it, it just sort of... It, it's a way of saying that gender is the stereotypes and actions without anyone asking you, well, what are they based on? Because when, as soon as you say, what are they based on? What do you mean by masculine and feminine? She wants not to have to get back to the yeah. words male and female. Yeah. And it's not, and look, and all the, the, all the characteristics of those um, um, uh, stereotypical uh, characterizations are all due to the sexual difference, right? I mean, it's not, yeah. an, accident, it's not an accident that women are saddled with the stereotypes they're saddled with yeah. because they all pertain to women's childbearing, children's, uh, women's uh, lesser physical strength, women's, you know, I mean, I mean, all... I would disagree with all. I would disagree with the all. I think some of them are... Um, well, they grow out of those things, right? I mean, they, they... They're attached to them, and, and many of them... I mean, many stereotypes are just simply true. I mean, if it's a stereotype that women like babies more than men, well, it's just also a true stereotype, and it would be astonishing if women didn't like babies more than men, because that would be... Because like, they're the ones that birth them. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a thing that people say in economics. You know, an economist is somebody who believes, who sees a $10 bill on the pavement, and he walks by it because, uh, there's, you know, there's no free lunch. There's no $10 bill that has been left unpicked up by someone else, you know? Well, evolution really is like that. There's nothing that evolution could exploit that it hasn't so you know if it was true that women didn't like babies better than men evolution would have made it the case so so there's a whole set of things like that that you know they absolutely are true they're to do with our bodies and our reproductive role and then there's a set of things that kind of get attached to that that are about values yeah so that's where i would push back at you so i'm saying it's they're not accidental i didn't say that they're, they're not yeah, they're not well, a few saying, of them are random it's the pink not and blue accidentally is related and the stereotypes about men are not accidentally related to sort of male, yeah. male body embodiedness, right? Um, um, yeah, no, I agree. Of course, all yeah. the value-laden ones are ridiculous. I mean, that's why that's what's wrong with it, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. But what's not wrong with it is that they're grounded ultimately in the sex differences. Yeah. And Butler just wants to eliminate that whole part. Yeah, and it's so strange, you know. I mean, partly I suppose it's just fashion. It must have seemed clever. 
you know? Yeah. And I have, I have some theories, though, about why, you know, why younger feminists in particular, or younger women, I would say, are so enthralled by this sort of anti-materialist, anti-rational, you know, metaphysical is the wrong word because that's got a philosophical connotation. I just mean not, you know, souls, basically. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of it is that um, it's hard being a younger woman knowing what happens as you age. I mean, it's hard for all of us to contemplate our aging and it's hard to contemplate that we die and so on. But women really have this abrupt switch from being somebody who is, if I'm allowed to say this, fuckable to somebody who isn't anymore. And that all happens in about five years between yeah. about 45 and 50. And, yeah. you know, a lot of things that human beings do are about um, repression and you're repressing your knowledge of what is to come. So I think young women really don't want to think that this is coming in quite soon for them. They don't want to look at women of 60 or 65 and say, that's going to be me soon enough. And the way that I feel about that person who's past it, who's no longer attractive, who's no longer of interest to men, um, mm. it's quite a bore. You know, older women like me are massive bores. We care about things like child safety. You know, we're always saying... You know, is this a good way to run things? We're matter of fact sort of people. You don't want to be that person. You want to be the glittering unicorns person no. when you're younger. And also you kind of want to pretend that men and the world aren't what you're going to find out they are in your 30s when you have kids and, and everything goes to pot, you know? No. So, so, so I think there's this huge lack of solidarity that's almost inherent in women's lives. I'm sorry to say, because I'd love to feel solidarity with all women. And that's between younger and older women. So older women can look back and think, gosh, you're a fool, but I was a fool too. And young women quite understandably think that's massively condescending. The most disturbing thing about this seems to me the the way it's divided women generationally. Yeah, it is. And again, this entire if you go further beyond just the, the the transgender identity stuff, just to the identity politics more generally, the worst thing about it seems to me the way it's 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 playing out uh, generationally in a way that yeah okay boomer versus you know yeah it's horrible I did yeah. a dialogue on that I'm okay boomer I wrote an essay on it too um then what you just said to me was just was so powerful um the thing just about real seeing what's seeing what you're going to be when you get older and feeling that you won't be desirable and all that and the way that that is gendered. Um, um, but I mean, I was, men can get more desirable. I mean, look at somebody yeah. like George Clooney, you know? I mean, he's in his 60s, as far as I know, and he's yeah, gorgeous. Absolutely. absolutely. There's no question about it. The only, yeah. the only think of one older woman celebrity who I think everybody still is really sort of like hot for, and that's Helen Mirren, right? So you add Michelle Pfeiffer. Maybe Michelle <laughs> Pfeiffer, but you know, it, it's, it, you yeah. can count them on like a few fingers, right? I but mean, even then, they're not, you know, they're not playing the romantic lead with a guy of 30. They're just that's not. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and um, they're, they're, they're gorgeous for their age, you know, and that is just a fact. And I also think, by the way, and I mean, this will get me attacked by some of the women that I, I, I like, like to talk to. I think it's almost inevitable I mean, it's not just sexism. It's not just stereotypes. It's not just our society. It's plus a lot of other things that I think... But it's also to do with evolution. I mean, you know, we are one of the, I think, only a handful of species, maybe just a couple, where there is a menopause. Yeah. So, you know, again, evolution does not leave the $10 bill on the pavement. It would not be evolutionarily advantageous for men to find postmenopausal women sexually attractive. It just wouldn't be. Now, that shouldn't mean that women have no value. That's where the sexism is, and that's where the societal problem is. But I mean, that's, there's also, a reason. Where the, that's also where the disintegration 
of relations between the sexes is such a disaster, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, the solution to the problem that you're describing, you know, in a normal healthy society is that by the time you get to that point, you are deeply into a a very, you know, meaningful, significant relationships uh, Uh where those things just don't matter anymore. Right. I mean, you've Uh had your children, you, you, they're, they're grown. Listen, my daughter, I'm going through this right now. My daughter is about to leave the house, right? Um, We, my wife and I, my wife is, 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 is going through, is, is in menopause right now. Um, she's seven years older than me. Um, so I'm 52. She's, she's going to be 50, She's going to be 59 um, in July. And sort of, you know, we've finished that part of our lives. We're done yeah. with that job that we had to do together, the most important job we'll ever do. And now we're kind of looking forward to mm-hmm. um, the next part, which we're, we're both going to be kind of old. And, you know, but we're, those things are done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now... Shoving so you, middle-aged people into the dating market and into the is just so cruel and awful. But it's so di- so different for the men and the women. I'm sorry. Oh no, absolutely, you know? <laughs> absolutely. No, no, no. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying yeah, is, yeah. is, this is made all the worse by yeah. disintegrating relationships between men and women, such that we have fifty percent divorce rates, and and yeah. just it feels to me like we're we're isolating everyone. And the women suffer the worst for it, right? I mean, <laughs> and it, it also plays out in other places, though. So even if you yeah. are still happily married, you know, you may have, as a woman, you may have gone through um, things in your thirties that mean that you're now no longer really very employable, and you should be, but you aren't. And you're also in a society that does value women generally for their looks, even when you're not talking about a woman that you're specifically interested in. So you see, I think young people see all of this, men and women. And I think that's a big part of why the women have distanced, younger women have distanced themselves from older women's version of feminism, which does seem to be uh, very focused on women's weaknesses or women's vulnerabilities or the bad things that happen to women or, you know, the unfairnesses that come to women. You know, so there's this offer instead of this glitter and unicorns version of feminism, which isn't about those sorts of boring things. And then there's this weird switcheroonie that they do where they say, um, you know, you're reducing women to their reproductive function when you say that it's reproductive function that makes somebody a man or woman. This is what I mean by noticing the difference between A implies B and B implies A. It's it's just the necessary condition for being a woman. It's not everything a woman is. And, you know, that is that is constantly, I constantly hear that young women saying, oh, you have such a reductive idea of what being or a woman is. Or essentialist, they say. Yeah, and I mean, they're the ones who They don't even know what these words mean most no, of the time. No, they don't. I mean, these have specific uses within reductive and essentialist, yeah. specific uses within philosophy. They have no idea what these words mean. Um, yeah, but I can see the appeal. You know, it seems maybe more attractive to... Um, you know, to hang out waving nice signs and to say, you know, you can pee next to me and, and you know, that you're the sort of very bourgeois. Cool. It strikes me as very bourgeois. Yeah. I, don't, I don't hear a lot of, I, I don't know if I hear an awful lot of, um, I, I would be very surprised if, if there were a lot of uh, uh, women feminists in still developing nations, right? Um, um, where they have, you know, brutal, brutally enforced patriarchies, right? Um, um, and by brutal, I mean like, you know, state enforced patriarchies. Yeah. I just would find it very hard for them to say, oh, embrace a performative notion of, 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 of feminism, right? I mean, I had a very interesting trip to China last year for um, something related to my day job. I was writing a special report for The Economist on banking. And we went out for dinner um, with people from the bureau. And I mean, there's, there's our own correspondence, and then there are local. Uh, staff who are hired, who are fixers or helpers, you know, who actually by law in China can't write for you. Incredibly brilliant and intelligent young people. And they were 
gobsmacked by what I was telling him about my research and gender identity. It, right? it was so enjoyable. They just couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I must be boring you. And they're like, no, tell us more. This is mad. You know? yeah. No, it's <laughs> not boring. It's like, such a a it's like a circus, right? I mean, it's like. Yeah. Yeah. It was very funny. It was, it, it's always good to talk to ordinary people. Like it is it, one of the things you have to do is um, get over this this hump of feeling like you're a massive bigot for even talking about these things, which I did for a while. You know, I did feel like I was going out, you know, a T for transphobe on my head. Um, and then I, once I got over that, it was very freeing. And I started to talk to ordinary people. Like I would go to the doctor's surgery or something. I'd say, yes, I can make this appointment because I'm off work writing the book. Uh, oh, what's the book about? Oh, well, and it's about gender identity. I don't know if you've seen anything about these young kids who think that maybe they're members of the opposite sex. And actually, I'm very worried because I think they're rushed into medical treatment too fast. You know, that's where I start because nearly everybody to that can say, oh, God, yeah, I saw something about that on telly. That worried me, too. Yeah. I didn't like, oh, that sounded like a social contagion or that sounded like a trend, you know. So people really, really get it. It's only when you're talking to people who've been through the humanities and social sciences in the last 15, 20 years max, maybe less, that people are thinking, shit, 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 she's a bigot. I'm going to get contaminated. Yeah. A lot of it is about contamination. These young people believe in contamination. Yeah. That, that's why they won't debate. They're afraid if they talk to you, they'll catch the, the germs it's from very you. Odd. It's a very odd idea. Um, um, um. Well, I think it's immoral, actually. This is this whole no co-platforming thing. You know, you've probably come across this. Like, even to speak on a platform with somebody who has an opinion you regard as problematic is immoral. So you actually, let me ask you, I mean, this is interesting because, so my take on this, and I have written quite a bit about this. Um, my take on this has been that it is almost always disingenuous and tactical, right? I mean, no, I don't think so. You actually think that these people, I guess it's, I'm always hesitant to, 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 to think that people in these positions could possibly be that stupid, right? I mean, yeah, but you should also be hesitant to believe that everybody is in bad faith. No, so no, these I, two things, right, you know, right. they contradict each other. No, you're right. You're right. I, I, I guess. I guess I feel it's less of an insult to them to accuse them of bad faith and to accuse them of just being so catastrophically stupid that they can't, you know, count know. you, right? I mean... Yeah, so why would you think, why would somebody think, for example, that men aren't any stronger than women? And here I have to come back and blame some parts of, you know, ill-advised things that happened in feminism. Not just this, that's like 10% of it. But, you know, if you are an extreme blank slatist, generally... There's not much of a step from there to believe that everything is socially constructed, like really everything. And I have seen papers that suggest that the reason that men are um, stronger than women is just because, you know, they were fed more as babies or something. You know, there are people who are willing to say that absolutely everything is down to nurture and absolutely everything is, uh, is not, you know, we're not born with it. Everything, 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 bodies as well as minds. And so those people can be persuaded that the reason men are better at sport is because we think sport is for men, so they were encouraged more when they were younger. And I've heard people say, with no word of a lie, that if we allow males into women's sports, the women will try harder and they'll close the, the, the sex gap in the results. Now, I've seen that being said now, but uh, you're saying that tra- the traditional feminists back before all no, this started no, no, with no, that? But, no, but it's a bit dangerous to start down this road of, of blank slatism at all. Like, if you, if you try to argue that the only reason little girls like dolls more than little boys do, I'm afraid you're starting down a road that yeah. you will not like where it brings you. Because, I mean, 70s, let's just sort of go back to, you know, 70s second wave feminism certainly focused on male violence. Yeah, it did, but, assume, but they thought that it was socially constructed, you know. But they didn't think that, 
I mean, I'm assuming that they thought that the reason why we should be concerned about male violence is because males are stronger than females. If they thought that the females were just as strong as the males, then then the logic of it would be, well, then, then, then kick the guy's ass, and then that'll be it, Yeah, right? but <laughs> they also, they never thought, I mean, I, I didn't hear one of that generation saying, well, why are males more violent than females? Mm. And you, you have to be terribly careful when you say this, because I don't condone, I mean, I would say that the reason that we need laws against rape is because rape is an attractive crime for so many men. If men didn't, you know, if men could be trained out of raping, or if men didn't like the idea of raping, we wouldn't need laws against it. You know, we don't need laws against things that people don't want to do. Yeah. And I mean, the reason we need strong laws against rape is because so many men will rape if they get the chance. So we have to, you know, we have to take it very seriously. We have to investigate it. We have to punish it. And, you know, the fact that we don't do any of those things shows in the rape rates. Anyway, so the same women as would say, you know, women are much less violent than men, you know, weaker physically than men, impregnatable, at risk from, you know, very un- unequal power balances within relationships because the man has the economic power, etc., etc. all those true things, would also say that men have been socialized into violence. And I don't believe that. I Although really I, do, don't. I think that that's true, though, also. I mean, in other oh, words, on top of, on other top words, of. I, I believe both that males are, are, are endemically more violent, right? But yeah. I also think that males are horrifically badly socialized. Yes, I agree with that totally. Um, yeah, I don't want to say that there is no such thing as socialization. I, I, I'm sort of, and I have to repeat, I said this is like 10% of the problem. I just think that if you are in the business of reality denial, and material reality denial. Material reality, yeah. You're, you're, not in, you're not in a good place yeah. when it comes to the point that somebody says to you, you know, yeah. well, what about, you know, maybe they were socialized into being faster runners as well. Yeah. So let's, you know, that's actually interesting. Let's stay on that for one minute. Um, um, and if I'm getting, if I'm getting too philosophy, just, you can just tell me. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. I'm nervous. <laughs> about this thing, about this blank slateism, because this, and I'm wondering if I, I'd want to make maybe a distinction that you're going to say is hair splitting. Um, okay. So, so yes, the, some of the traditional femmes that are now being called rad femmes, which I actually really dislike because it's just traditional feminism, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, Fem- female person support. There's nothing you know, radical whatever. about the free to be you and me record, right? I mean, that's not <laughs> radical, right? That's just sort of right. feminism, right? No, I mean, um, rad femme is a very specific line of thinking. Yeah. And, well, and I, mean, a lot, just, I mean, I'm not a rad femme. But I'm just seeing a lot of people now who it seems to me are just expressing traditional feminist views being late called either by others that are being called rad femmes or they're calling themselves rad femmes when I don't see anything particularly radical about it. Um, yeah, um, I agree. It doesn't matter. Um, let's just call it traditional feminism. Um, yes, there were blank slatists among traditional feminists, but they were social constructionists. They were not self-constructionists. And so in other words, the reason why I'm, I'm inclined to think that, that – um, the current gender ideology is not an outgrowth of progressive or uh, traditional feminist um, um, uh, uh, thinking, but rather is a sort of deformation of liberalism is because the gender identification, it's not that their identities are socially constructed. Their identities are self-determined, right? Yes, um, yes. Um, it's an, and that's why there can be hundreds of them. Right. Yes. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> no, it's a runaway process, isn't it? You know, yes. once you start down this route, I mean, if, if you can have more than two genders, whatever a gender is, I mean, something associated with sex, if you can have more than two, you can have infinitely many. But there's no there's no natural stopping point. There's no reason it should be 97 or 462. I don't think there actually are genders. I don't think gender is an ontological category. I think that there that things are gendered. 
right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that sounds um, right. I don't think that there are genders the way there are sexes. I mean, I mean, I mean, that mm-hmm. doesn't, and I've said as much. Um, um, all right, so if... I, I agree with you I, about that social, I agree with you about that social and self-constructed distinction, and it's interesting, and I don't think that this is an outgrowth of any sort of feminism. I think that it was a weakness in feminism when this stuff came along that was not helpful immediately right. in responding. That's all. It, it was something that could get co-opted, right? It could something that could get used. I think it was like having, a, you know, having weak lungs or something when there's yeah. pneumonia going around, you know? Yeah. It yeah. was an unfor- there were a number of unfortunate things that happened when this bizarre yeah. line of thinking, yeah. you know, when, when, when viral, whatever, you know, like exploded and then mutated. And a num- there were a number of ways in which we were not ready for it. And so the blank slateism, social constructionism was one weakness. Yeah. That maybe that let this stuff sort of let this stuff in. I want to ask you if there was another weakness. Um, and this is something that you see right wing people sort of chortling about now. So yeah. here's, some, here's something you'll hear right wing people say um, um, and chortle about. Oh, you, you traditional feminists, you're getting, you're, you're getting what you've been asking for yeah, for the last yeah. 35 years. You've been no platforming and shaming and engaging in purity spot, purity, purifying rituals and all of that sort of stuff. And now you're getting it. Now you're finding out you weren't even pure enough for your own coalition and they're kicking out of your own. So you'll hear right wing people say that. Mm. I think that's unfair. Mm. But I'm wondering if a lesser version of it along the lines of what we just said about um, yeah, like a 10%. <laughs> about um, about uh, uh, blank slate. In other words, that there was a tendency in traditional feminism, 70s second wave feminism, towards purity rituals and um, 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 no platforming. Let's just use that as a sort of a concept, not as a specific thing. Mm. Um, um, but sort of the, the no debate kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. The more polemical sort of, you know, that also you could say was a weakness that sort of allowed this kind of I sort of feel I'm not sure to come you know what I mean I mean I just I wasn't in those circles and you know I thought feminism had done largely most of the things that it needed that I personally needed to do and then I was doing other things you know in my adult life I, I always said I was a feminist but I was I wasn't ever a movement feminism feminist of any sort so in a way I almost can't answer that I don't know if people were no platform each other but I do know that it's always been quite fissiparous feminism it's been quite what fissiparous quite prone to breaking up you know and I, I have theories about that i don't know historically what the various reasons would be but it, it is it is something that is constantly prone to infighting so why might that be um i mean i think that would then play out in you know refusing to be at events with this, this person or you know saying such and such wasn't a good enough feminist or whatever so you know that, that this is me answering you in a slightly different way do you think it's more prone to infighting than other civil rights movements that's actually i hadn't thought I think of that i do before. i think i do and i think that there's a few reasons i mean one is that often this is the only power that women can have is in the feminist movement so of course you've got people who if they were men would be running corporations and you know just like they would have power power and this is this is it. This is the only place. And you know, I, I see that even now. I see some like really a lot of very brilliant people who, you know, are on this particular stage and you know, elbowing with each other. It's quite natural. You know, men just have bigger, uh, bigger um, opportunities available to them than women. And that was more true in the nineteen seventies. So that's one. And then another reason is back to this thing: these forces working against women's solidarity. And one of them is this generational difference. But another one is the very uncomfortable fact that. For really a lot of women, the person whose um, 
whose uh, rights and um, situation in life matters most is actually a man. It's the man that they're economically hitched to. So a woman who has to choose between, I'm not talking about a feminist here now, just a woman, a woman who has to choose between, you know, her husband getting promoted at work because, you know, they are unfairly prone to promoting men or some random other woman that she doesn't even know on sisterhood grounds who wishes to be treated fairly at work. Well, her husband is the one that actually matters more to her. So women are the, we're the oppressed class who are embedded with our oppressor class and we always have been. Just stated in very dramatic terms. And this means sisterhood is something that's constantly got to be constructed by us. We've got to do more. You know, we don't we don't act like a unionized body who understands that, yes, we must stand together because otherwise the bosses will defeat us. Actually, for a lot of women, it's quite good to be a turncoat. It's quite good to be a turncoat and embed with the enemy because the enemy is actually one of the people who's feeding you and looking after you and, you know, you're fine, you're married to a nice man, you're married to a man who's doing well. And that's just always been the case. Are you, this is very interesting. So I want to ask you about something that that if you haven't read it, then I'm just going to move on. Did you, have you read Joan Didion's scathing attack on the women's movement from 1972? It's it's a pretty famous piece. I have. Okay, it's a pretty famous piece. And then I'm not going to push you on it. But I mean, one of the things that she wonders is, whether the whole idea that 50% of the population could comprise a class yeah. in, the sense, in the Marxist sense of a class was just going to always be folly to begin with, right? I mean, that, that you just, it's just, there's too much diversity within that coalition for it to, for, within that group for it to have, because there's always been, I mean, you know, what do you say about the Phyllis Schlafly's, right? I mean, there's always yeah. been, there's always been a pretty substantial division um, politically, Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I absolutely. And I mean, so much of the women's women's movement has been on the left as well. Women are just as likely to be on the right as men. And in fact, various historical points, they're more likely to be. On yeah. The right. And so I guess I guess and I and I guess I would be resistant. It, it, it's hard for me to say that all those people, many of them quite powerful people, I mean, strong minded mm. people are all victims of false consciousness that are the result of patriarchy. I guess I just, I'm resist. It almost seems to me that it would be more insulting, insulting. To, women to suggest that. Than yeah, just to suggest I agree. That they couldn't have the same diversity of opinion as everybody else, right? I don't see think yeah. was oppressed by patriarchy into self-hatred and, you know what I mean? No, I, 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 I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I think that all women do have some important and powerful common interests and, very often an individual woman may not realize that until it's too late for her personally. So, uh, you know, and again, these things, these forces work against sisterhood, unfortunately. So one of them might be, you know, all women have a powerful interest in rape being something that is, you know, yeah. really socially uh, despised, um, yeah. you know, prosecuted, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're a woman, it hasn't happened to you. you, you if, if you're a woman, it hasn't happened to it may be more pleasant for you to imagine that those other women brought it on themselves, that those other women were careless, that those other women were swags, that those other women just went out with the wrong guy. You have sense. You know, psychologically, that can be quite comforting. And then, of course, the awful thing happens to you too, and you realize that you were wrong about all of it, that you were much less secure than you thought you were. Hopefully it doesn't happen to you, you know. But so that's an example of how I do think every woman has that interest, but a lot of women think they don't. Yeah. Um, the yeah. last thing on this that I just will ask you, and, and, and I, I think I think I agree with you, but there's this one other example that I was thinking of in terms of whether the women 
the women's movement is uniquely more divi- internally divided than others. I was just thinking about gay, the gay rights movement, right? Now there, there were very, very powerful splits between yes. what I would call the normalizers yes. and the, um, and the, uh, the alternative lifestyles, right? Um, um, to the point to which people don't realize this just because they don't know any history, um, or even recent history, but actually the gay movement was, the gay, the gay rights movement was very divided over marriage. Oh yeah, here in, here Andrew in Sullivan was the only one pushing that, and he was yeah. pilloried by the gay rights community. I know. No, Stonewall, our biggest gay rights, um, well it's not yeah. really a gay rights organization anymore, but it was set up to be one here in the UK. It didn't adopt, um, uh, support for same-sex marriage until I think 2011. Twenty twelve. Do you think the women's movement is still though is even more internally divided than the gay rights movement was? I think that was a, a really a two part split, and uh, whereas this I'm talking about is much more about you know constant splitting off or yeah. you know it's lots of different divisions you know left right and um, Christian non Christian um, people who felt that it was natural and obvious that you know women would be more centered around family and home and other women who. Yeah really felt that that was letting everybody down you know just a lot of different axes old young I mean I don't think young and old gay people are particularly separated in any obvious way you know yeah no that makes sense that makes sense that makes perfect sense um so maybe we could talk move on I mean I'm trying to keep my eye on the time because I could talk to you for three hours um um move on to more general questions having to do with the place of this dispute within the larger politics. Right. And so, um, this is all happening within the context of what to my mind is a major political realignment that's happening at least in Britain and the U S Maybe mm-hmm. in Europe also, although Europe seems to me is more common. Definitely in Canada and Australia as well. The Anglosphere. And, the Anglosphere yeah. and I would say Northern Europe as well, at least. Yeah. And so, um, first of all, do you think that we are undergoing a major realignment? Because then I want to ask you things about this, this, this fight between feminists and gender, and gender identity theories within that. Mm. Do you think we are going through a major realignment? I mean, my, my hypothesis has been that up until very recently, our politics was essentially still a Cold War politics, and mm. that the left-right division was essentially a, a, a division that made sense in that frame of reference, but that we're now engaging in a, in a political realignment where that left and right is either going to disintegrate or is going to be recalibrated such that it means something very different because we're now po- we're now well post-Cold War and a very different different set of concerns are arising. Do you, do you agree that we're going through a significant political realignment? I think we're probably going through several of them at the same time. And the one you, the one you described certainly sounds right to me. How, and do then, you see, how do you see what's going on politically? What just happened in the UK, what seems yeah. to be happening in the US that strikes me as remarkably similar. Um, so I would how say do you that, see it? Yeah, the thing that I would draw out from what's happened in the UK the most, you know, and I wish I'd known about this at the time because I was writing about Britain for a significant part of the time we're talking about. If you go back to the happy, happy days when Tony Blair was prime minister, and I don't say that particularly because I think he was the most wonderful prime minister. I just mean that they were happy days. Yeah. He was in, he, you know, in 1997, he was elected. I wrote about education and other things in Britain from 2005 to 2010 when the first Tory government was uh, was elected, the coalition government. And, you know, I remember sitting in meetings with Britain section at The Economist and we were saying things like, is two billion the best, is the best way we could spend that two billion on more free nursery care or is it on something else? You know, happy, happy, happy days. 
you know, it seemed like the end of history. And with hindsight, People it actually wasn't. With that title. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the thing that was happening that with hindsight, none of us, and I mean none of us in the commentariat paid enough attention to, was immigration. And I mean, I am an immigrant, and I think that, you know, we enrich the places that we go to. So I'm saying something with a very heavy heart here. The fact was that lots of people in Britain didn't agree that the millions of us who moved from other European Union countries to Britain were a good thing overall. Um, economically, they were. I mean, the people in the government had run the numbers and we brought more than we cost. And also the country was aging fast and Britain was lucky to be able to bring in so many young people. So, so they, just, they just decided that this was the right thing to do on technocratic grounds, which it was. But actually, a large number of people out in Britain didn't agree, and they didn't agree for whatever reasons. Some of them were racist, lots of them weren't, lots of them just communitarians, lots of them just didn't like it. The world was changing too fast. And, you know, they felt, whether they were right or wrong, that their child wasn't getting a job or their child wasn't getting a house because of these people, you know. So I'm not even talking about the reasons. I'm just talking about the fact that people felt this, and they also felt that they couldn't say it. If they said it, they were racists, and that there was nobody at all in power who, or could even potentially be in power, who would, they could vote for, that they could voice this feeling. Like the only people who were anti-immigration in Britain at the time were like really far right, like really people that you wouldn't want to vote for. So there was this pressure cooker effect for a good 10, 15 years where people felt, lots of people, millions and millions and millions of people, that their justified concerns, again, whether they were or not, they felt they were justified, had no outlook whatsoever, and then that bloody idiot David Cameron decided to hold a referendum because he thought he'd win it with 60-65% and he would be able to tell the people who were harassing him inside his party to bog off. And the rest is history. You know, millions of people went, oh, all right then, no, I don't like it. And then and then a very interesting thing happened, which was the elite attempted to, or the establishment, whatever you want to call it, attempted to kind of smooth it all over, like pretend it hadn't happened somehow have a second referendum or try to, you know, negotiate a way to leave the EU. Once, wasn't really once, once they had it, and once it was so demonstrable, they had to do it. I mean, otherwise, yeah, otherwise you, literally, way. You, literally, you literally then undermine basic confidence in the democracy, right? I completely agree. I mean, that's, that's, my personal, that's my personal position. You can't function quite then. A while. Once the trouble was it. leaving was almost impossible, but then that looked like it proved... The point that, you know, Britain had got to enmeshed. So, I, so that was a sort of a long way of giving a sort of worked example of how something happened, which was a divide between the establishment and you know, quite a large number of ordinary people, ordinary people feeling they were unable to say freely what they felt they should be allowed to say. And this feels very familiar to me, by the way, at the moment. And I can understand now really viscerally how shit they felt about that. And yeah. then the establishment was not responsive. So how come people weren't able to say what they wanted to say that got heard in power? So that's the role of civil society. The role of civil society is to act as a conduit between the establishment and just ordinary people. So if things aren't working, that feeds up reasonably quickly. Uh, if there's a new idea and you're thinking about things, that gets heard. Well, I think our civil society is broken. 
I think that an awful lot of the sorts of organisations that are meant to act as links between establishment and grassroots have just form. become part of the establishment. As well. Exactly. I mean, I you know I will name some of them in the in the US. The, you know, people the like the ACLU, classes, the media classes, the yeah. academic classes. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of um, you know NGO and um, charity yeah, yeah, lobby group yeah. type people. They yeah. you know they're all now uh, staffed with people who've been to university. I mean, I went to university too. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's just you know, they've, they've just become very like, so you've got bureaucrats, you've got career politicians, you've got people who are staffing the universities, as you say, journalism, which used to be a non-graduate profession. You've just got all these things that are, you know, hearing each other and not actually connected in any way. I mean, and of course, journalism, to do a little segue there, you know, so much money has gone from journalism that there is no local journalism anymore. So it's not like there's what there used to be, which was a you know well-funded, well-supported national network of local journalists, people going to court, people going to council hearings, people. Yeah, all the organs are owned scandal. by gigantic corporations, and so yeah, I mean, they're, they're mostly closed anyway. They're, they're multi multinational corporations. I mean, you know. It, so you just don't have a good connection between people and the people who are ruling over them. So whatever you think of Donald Trump, the point I would like to make about Donald Trump is he came as a great surprise. Not he to me. Have, yeah, but you know what I mean? Like I he, know what you mean, yeah. He shouldn't have come as a surprise because nothing like that should come as a surprise. Yeah. And the same he, with Brexit. An expression of something. A surprise. He's an expression of something. He's not the cause of it, right? And um, Yeah, but it's um, also, we, you know, in a, in a functioning democracy, the channels of communication are open enough that nothing like that should be a surprise. You should be able to see it coming quite a long way away. And well, that's about academia and journalism and other that, That's the danger of having your all your institutions ideologically captured in this yeah. way. Um, yeah. And yeah. speaking only to each other and, and sort of not knowing anybody in the other communities, yeah. um, um, you know, you know, back in the seventies, there's that famous line from Pauline Kael after, after Nixon was elected, she says, well, I don't know. And I didn't know any, she was so shocked. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't know anyone who voted for him. Well, nobody I know voted for him, but that was, you know, one eccentric woman, you know, who wrote for, you know, was a film critic that now is the general truth about the entire media class, right? They have yeah. no idea, right? Yeah. But, and but, so imagine you're in the half of the population that voted for Brexit or voted for Trump. Yeah. And the people who are producing, you know, the the world around you, the intellectual world, the yeah. entertainment world, and all of that, those people are don't all know anyone you. like you. And they, they just don't even know anyone like well, and you. They also, and they have contempt for you. Yeah, yeah. And they and express I mean, you know, maybe, it all the time. They express and, and, it And, you know, maybe some of the things are contemptible. You know, I'm not even saying that they aren't. Like, this is not an yeah. argument about the rightness of No, that's not the issue. The issue just is the reality of how that then plays out when you do that. I mean, it's very yeah. dangerous. So, so, this is, so, so we, you asked me a question about political realignment. And what, yeah. one of the things I would say is that this is quite a febrile situation to be in where you don't have good connections between different parts of, this, of the body political because they aren't speaking to each other properly and they aren't understanding each other properly and information isn't flowing properly, you know? I mean, part of that in the States is the polarization where, you know, one group of people watch one set of media, the other group watch the other set, and yeah. they live in different places and so on. But even in Britain, where there's nothing like that level of polarization, you know, and I know it is a fact because we've done some polling and because I talk to people that really rather few people think that gender self-identification is a good idea. And yet, if you were to go on what is said in academia and in journalism, you would think you never know. A few, they're just a few massive bigots who are holding out against it. <laughs> you get a total misimpression of what yeah. the public opinion actually is. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's really, really, really dangerous. Those, the, these things, you know, Brexit shows what happens, that, you know, you, let, you don't allow people to uh, shape the country that they live in the way that they wish to. And then there's a, a, quite a painful break. And that break, like you asked me, what way do I think the realignment will work? One of the things that I would say about Brexit is that it's not going to end up where anyone wanted it to end up, including the people who voted for it. So if there had been proper channels open and people have been able to express what they wanted, then you could have done a course adjustment. And that course adjustment would have meant things like um, when a whole load of new um, Eastern European countries came into the EU, all the other countries except for Britain and Ireland set restrictions on local people moving from those countries for several years. So if the elite in Britain had been alive to the idea that people were very worried about lots of people coming in from those countries, they would have done the same. And then we would not be here. So, and then I don't, I don't know what other things you could have corrected along the last 15 years, but you could have. But now we've left, and that isn't actually going to be done well. It's going to be done extremely badly because the worst people are running it now, you know, the, the demagogues, the people who are completely opportunist and have just hitched themselves to this because, you know, it's a chance to get into power, people who are willing to lie to get votes, all of those sorts of things. So it's not like it's even going to... So, so you don't think, you don't think that this be. is... You, so, uh, uh, there's so much in here. I mean, you don't think that the realignment in Britain is one where that's that, that, that it seems to happen is going to be stable. In other words, you don't think that Tory isn't, the Tories are now going to be the party of Labour. Well, it might be. Because um, that is happening in the United States. It's been happening so, so, a lot longer in the United yes. States. And it does seem relatively stable, right? I think that might happen in the UK because Labour, as in the Labour Party, are just the most self-harming idiots I have ever seen in politics anywhere in the world at any time. So I think they're just going to shoot themselves in the foot but it's everywhere more else. Than that, isn't it? I mean, I mean, it's 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 very parallel to what happened here, and that is. No, that- I tell you, I tell you what I think the difference is. I think that Brexit is going to be just such a massive disaster because it's going to be so badly run, and because. Oh. Because the people who voted for it wanted something a bit impossible. They wanted, see, they're, not, they're not paying attention to the fact that it was the immigrants who, us immigrants, who uh, balanced the age profile of the British population. Like the reason that Britain doesn't have to put taxes up to 50 and 55% of GDP is because it has this constant inflow of young migrants who didn't need to be educated, don't need much health care, but are working and paying taxes, are staffing hospitals, are running care homes, et cetera, et cetera, you know? So if you don't have those people, you have to completely realign your economic, your, your, your economy. And the people who voted for Brexit want some of that, but not all of it. You know, they want, they don't want the immigrants, but they do want the jobs done. And they do want the taxes to stay where they are. So it's all going to be quite painful. I think immigration is a red herring. I mean, I, 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 look, I would tell a similar story to the one you told, but with one significant difference. And, I, and it's some, a difference that I think is actually legitimate, whereas I don't think the immigration thing is legitimate. And that is massive, decades-long deindustrialization, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, so, and so in a sense, what we've done in, in the developed world is run a gigantic experiment. Can you have an entire country of middle class bourgeois people? In other words, in other words, can you have an entire country where nobody makes anything? Mm. Where you have no class distinctions that go along the lines of work, right? Um, where all the labor 
and manufacturing everything is outsourced, right? In other words, to me, the problem is not the migration of labor. It's the migration of capital, right? So I suppose here is a place where I think that the U.S. and the U.K. You can't have a country without a a labor class. You just can't. Not everybody can be a computer programmer, an investment banker, a brain surgeon. There are people that have to work. We have to make... So I don't disagree with you, but I would just say that the way it will play out in the U.S. and the U.K. will be different for two reasons. And one of those is the U.S. is much larger. Uh, And the other one... So so the larger means that you can actually make some decisions by fiat, for example, to rebalance your economy so that it onshores. Britain really isn't in a position to do that. It's just not a big enough player in, in global... In global so Britain games. couldn't reindustrialize, even if it yeah, wanted to. Not like with anything like the ease that the US could, and the US is not going to find it easy either. So that's one. And the other one is the scale of this migration from other EU countries has been something very sudden and very extreme and has allowed Britain just to develop in a very short time in a way that you haven't seen in the US and those people can just go home again, you know. So you, don't think that, and, you don't think there's a direct analogy between no, English, the English Midlands and North and the American Rust Belt and the fact that the American Rust Belt, which had been de- voting for Democrats because they were labor for a 100 years, are now voting for Republicans and the British Midlands and North now voting for Tories. That strikes me as just not, can't be coincidental, right? That, that reflects no, it's a got, large it's, it, trend, it, it, right? I would say it's like 50% the same and 50% different. And the differences behind them are the same things. I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously both places are affected by global value chains and offshoring and globalization and all of that. Your answers to it in the U.S. are going to be different than the answers yeah. in the U.K. No, no, that's right. I that's agree. all I mean. I agree. So, yeah, so... so I do want to tell you a bit about the book because I'm maybe not sure. Well, let's yeah. talk about that. It, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, so it seems like it's a very specific topic, and it is a very specific topic, but I'd be interested to hear from you where you see the parallels in other aspects of identity politics and where sure. you see in other ways that the, the left has changed. Because I, I, I wasn't following these things. You know, I came in just when people started saying, you know, there's no such thing as a man or you can't find a woman. There's never a man. It's always a bloody woman, you know, by the way. It's always a woman who's a loose shifting constellation or something like that. Anyway, (laughs) that's a quote. Loose shifting constellation of I forget what qualities. (laughs) Bullshit. So, yeah, so what I'm doing with the book is I'm going to start with the early sex changes, um, which were always men, by the way. It's always men who want to be women. And... Until recently, now it's until opposite. recently, yeah, which is which is very interesting. Yeah. It was always it was always men who very profoundly wished to be women and felt that they were women. And you know, you've probably sort of seen the film or at least seen bits of the film and the Danish girl. So that was like the second or third ever sex change operation. Um, so I'm going to start with those and then bring it up, you know, to nearer to to the current time. But you know, but by about sort of two in the two thousands, there was a, quite a strong understanding of these men among sexologists and people in gender clinics. They knew what they were about. So those men were about one of two things. They were either what you might call extremely effeminate gay men, like gay men who were hyper-identified with girls when they were little, often quite had their heads screwed on, knew what they were doing, felt that their lives would just be better if they transitioned in every way and they'd be more comfortable, they'd fit into the world better. And then the other larger group were these guys who had an unusual sexuality, which was to do with their own... um, their own desire to be a woman and their own erotic... Autogynophiles, I think it's called. Yes, so, you know, erotic fixation on the notion of yourself as a woman. This wasn't even controversial. 
there were only a few people in the world who talked about it because there were only a few people. And, they're usually, and they them. were usually straight, overwhelmingly. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, because they were they were they were they found women attractive, but the woman yeah. that they wished to be attracted to most was themselves as a woman. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. were often married, often had kids, you know. Yeah. And so then, one of the things that happened is that those men's desire to conceal even from themselves their motivations. Uh, led to this idea that it's actually your identity, your identity that um, makes you a woman. So if you imagine that you're some bloke who's been cross-dressing since early teens, you have been, you've been in love with this woman in, in a real sense, like in a meaningful sense. And I'm not trying to mock here. I'm really not. No, no, I understand. For maybe, yeah. for maybe 30 yeah. years. And she's quite real to you now. She feels much realer than anything else. And maybe you've had your kids, maybe, you know, a lot of things have happened. You've done well at work and so on. And now it's unbearable. You wish this woman to be given reality. She feels like a real woman, the woman inside. I mean, I've read several of the, the autobiographies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they talk about the woman inside, like Lily Elba, who was the woman inside Andreas Wegener, the, the Danish girl. Like, he really felt she was there and she just needed to be released from the, you know, the, the fake body. And then yeah. she would be, she would blossom, you know. So that's how it feels. And then somebody says to you, oh, yeah, that's a kink. <laughs> just not very helpful and also you know going into work and saying i've realized finally who my real self is i wish to live as my real self is a very much more attractive thing to do than to say um i've been cross-dressing since i was 13 and now i want to do it all the time you know to put it rather bluntly so i think really a huge part of the force behind this notion of gender identity was these male people's desire to give life to this person who feels like an identity, really feels like a real person, without acknowledging exactly where it came from, even to themselves. And of course, then in the wider, in the wider world, this came at a time when there was a ready-made theory to borrow, you know, queer theory, identity politics, exactly what you've been talking about, about um, you know, the hyper-individualist notion of identity. Yeah. And you could just slot into that. I, so I sort of see it as a scavenger the scavenger ideology that latched on to other things that were in the culture. And it was like a match made in heaven if what you want to do is to say that you really always have been a woman and that anyone who says you aren't a woman is a massive bigot. Uh, from any other point of view, it hasn't exactly been ideal. And then what she mentions, just to sort of not leave it hanging, about the fact that it's mostly young girls now, yeah. there's, a separate, there's a separate line of research into why women have cross-dressed through history. And it's really not about sex. It's about escaping the strictures of being female. It's about being able to to, to, to play roles publicly that yeah. you are not allowed, not permitted to play. So then you ask yourself, why do so many teenage girls now say they want to be boys? And you know, it's not because they aren't allowed to be a doctor or something if they aren't boys. Yeah, that's what well, I'm asking the analogy. So then, what's okay? Well, I mean, I can tell you because I'm old enough. It's sure. harder to be it's harder to be a girl now than it was when I was a girl in the 1970s. And there's so much more porn around. The world has become so massively pornified. And if you're the sort of girl who finds that particularly distasteful, so for example, if you're a lesbian or if you've got an eating disorder, uh, you, you may really find it viscerally disgusting, the idea of growing into womanhood. And it's amazing how pink and blue the world has become. I mean, it really wasn't in the 1970s, you know? And now it's everything is pink and blue. Everything is gendered for children. So there's more, the boxes are worse now than they were for children. They aren't for adults. Obviously, I've been able to go further than I would have been able to if I was 30 years older. But for children, it's a more constraining thing. And then, of course, there's a wretched internet to tell you all about all these silly ideas. So there's a social contagion thing, too. This is a massive social contagion. Social contagion thing strikes me as just, it has to be true, right? In the sense that you could not possibly 
offer any kind of organic or naturalistic no. account of this kind of spike. Yeah, and the switch of sexes as well. So and the, the number of boys, it just makes boys no has increased, but the girls has increased by like a thousand percent. Yeah, the people who are denying that just strike me as just being flat yeah. out disingenuous. Yeah. Just I mean, if it was just about that you um, you now feel that you have the courage to come out, then we would see middle-aged women coming out as trans. And, and there are no middle-aged women And not that large of a spike, not 1,500% yeah. or some crazy, yeah. ridiculous yeah. number. But no, this thing, the, the other part that you're talking about is, is really interesting. Um, and I do want to do ask you a few things. I, I realize yep. we're watching the clock. Um but just about what you just said um, um, about the identities and yeah, the the good, the good, the men and the women. So first of all, it sounds to me like you're saying, and I don't have a better word. I know people hate this word, but let's just to give it an umbrella. That transgenderism is not a single phenomenon. No, it really isn't. That's so true. I mean, I I, I think I think it's hard to say that being trans is a thing. Right, there are multiple not one thing. versions multi- of being yes. trans. I mean, tell me, what what do these four people have in common? So you've got a three-year-old little boy who's very, very camp, sweet little camp kid who says he's really a girl. You've got a 14-year-old who's just worked out that she's lesbian, is depressed, has an eating disorder. She thinks that she maybe wants to be a boy. You've got a, a very, very gay man in his mid-twenties who's slowly realizing that he's never going to get to sleep with any of the people he wants to sleep with. You've got a man who's just finished, just, just left the, the army in his mid-forties, has a wife and two kids, has been cross-dressing since he's 12, and... Um, wishes to live full-time as a woman. Those are just four completely different things, and I haven't even covered the gamut there, you know? Yeah. Like, what the, so the only way you could say those people have something in common is to say that there is a gender identity and that we all have it and that some people get the wrong one in their, in their bodies and, right. and that, you know, there are pink brains and blue bodies or something. And the thing is, there's just, like, zero evidence for that. Also, by the way, some of those people don't actually act at all in cross-sex ways. Like, these autogynophilic men... They're really not very feminine. So the notion that they have in some way no, they act like brains. Brutes. They act like brutes. I mean it's 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 actually kind of shocking to see. Um it's Yeah, some of them do. Some of them really do. Yeah. Um, um I would I wouldn't want to generalize. I know some really lovely people who, no, 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 um, no. who identify as AGP. No. no. No, that's that's the that disclaimer applies to everything we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking of very specific people I wouldn't want to hurt. Um but um so it's not a single phenomenon. That seems demonstrable. I mean, there was an effort, I think, for a while to say that it was a single phenomenon and a medical phenomenon. They would call it gender dysphoria, dysmorphia, whatever. But that just means discomfort. That just means discomfort also, with your well, gender. But they tried to say that it had a that it had a diagnostic kind of material basis. But the yeah. problem is that now they've kind of they've kind of chucked that themselves. They now say yeah, they have. you have to be dysgender dysphoric to be trans, right? Oh, yeah, they just say gender diverse, you know, and they right. say that and these so, kids are just like gender warriors or something. Right, and so, you know, I, I think it's what you're saying is undeniable at this point that it's multiple phenomena, it's not a single one. And thus the idea of there being a single sort of politics for it is a little bit a little yes. bit weird, right? Um, and you want different things for these people as well, you know? I mean, for the teenage girls, what you want is, you know, treatment for their eating disorders, a world that's less less phobic, whatever. The little boys, I mean, you know, we know what happens to those little boys if you don't tell them that they're girls and you leave them alone, which is they, they grow up to be that. mostly gay. Yeah, and I mean, then they're, they're fertile, their you know, bodies haven't been messed around with, you know, so that's better. Yeah. And with the other groups, it's slightly harder to say what, and you know, at some point you do have to say, well, I'm kind of a liberal who believes that people should do what's best for them. Why do you think, so the, the thing about this that strikes me, and this is something that I've, I've Note, noted a number of times across the different civil rights categories, 
it's a little weird, isn't it, that it's harder to be a girl at a time when the society is much less sex- pervasively sexist than it was before? In other words, why is it harder to be a girl now than in 1972? I mean, in 19... 19- I, I, I can remember... Their, their it's choices were zero, right? No, I know. When I was in school, we had a careers talk in my secondary school, and I'm not kidding, the options were nun, nurse, and teacher. So, so a friend of mine who actually went on to be a doctor, and a very well-known doctor who's written a prize-winning book about brain surgery... Uh, she was told, well, aren't you going to apply to be a nurse? So but, why is it worse to be a girl now? I mean, a, a, young, a younger girl, um, because of porn, because of, because of sex, sexualization. Okay, I mean, I didn't, I, didn't think, I didn't think so much about how I looked. And I didn't think when I was little about how much I looked, how I looked, you know. I mean, of course, you became very self-conscious when you were a teenager and so on. But, you know, we weren't dolled up. There wasn't the wretched internet telling you that you were ugly, that you were, you know, just not good enough. So porn, and porn is of course connected to the internet, but then also girls are very prone to social contagions. I haven't seen a good explanation of to, as to exactly why, but whenever you have social contagion, it's girls. Do you know the bulimia story? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I've been, and then there's Come on, there are anorexia like, communities. I mean, it's yeah. disturbing, but right? Bulimia, bulimia didn't even exist. It was one of the rarest things. Most doctors didn't even see a single case of bulimia. A friend, I was telling a friend of this, uh, a friend of mine this, and she said, oh, wow, that's amazing. When I was 14, we had a talk in school, she said, about eating disorders, and it was meant to tell us not to do them. And in this stupid video, they said, some bulimics actually stick toothbrush down their throat to make themselves sick. She said, a week later, there were four girls in her class who were sticking toothbrushes down their throat to make themselves sick. So that's, that's a, a huge part of why girls are being affected now, is that there's this global community of, of nutty things that are happening, very unhealthy behaviors on Tumblr and so on. Yeah. And I would add one thing to that, and I haven't finished reading about it. Um, I'm reading for the, for the book. Do you know what a somatizing illness is? What a what illness? Somatizing. So it's a mental condition that plays out in your body, roughly speaking. Don't never so hyster- hysteria under Charcot, like, you know, the story of how Charcot at the Salpetriere created yeah. um, hysteria in his patients. You know, there's yeah. a mass outbreak of hysteria. That's a somatizing illness. And this book is absolutely fascinating. It's about a specific thing, which is about the way the doctor's ideas about the way the world and the body and the mind work creates illness. <laughs> in their patients. So you have somebody who just has general distress of some sort. They're miserable. They hate their life. They feel sore all the time. In a, in a, in a, a world where doctors believe that nerves act in a particular reflex way, that will solidify on the body into a certain sort of disease. 20 years later, they have a different idea about how the world works. That same person will have a different disease that plays out quite differently. Yeah. It's, like a praxis, it's like a praxis-oriented um, um, placebo effect, right? Yeah, and it's and it's very extreme. And you know, one of the other striking things in this book I'm reading about it at the moment is the number of doctors who, throughout history, have believed when they have effectively created illness in their female patients, that taking out her ovaries will solve it. It's extraordinary the extent to which that happens in the medical profession. Well, we are watching little girls or teenage girls—I shouldn't say little, really teenage girls and young women learning from the medical profession and from the internet that we have gender identities when you are uncomfortable in your body it is because your gender identity is the wrong right, one and you should have hysterectomies and, and you should have a hysterectomy which and is, i can not see how medical historians aren't shouting up and down about this jumping up and down and telling us all that this is happening there are so many people who've been really lax 
in this whole story. But when I read this, I was getting shivers. When I, and then I turned the page and I get to the bit where they say, you know, interestingly, many doctors thought again that taking out the ovaries would solve this. Oh, my God. Here we are again. I know. I, I just I, – I, it's almost I, – I raised a daughter – yeah, I haven't got a daughter. It is almost unwa- unwatch- unreadable and unwatchable to me. To, to, I, I can't... Think of this. I know, I, I know. Cannot think of, I cannot read about breastbinding and mastectomies to, to children, to, to people who don't have breast cancer or ovarian cancer, which my no. mother had both, right? Um, um, and... Um, I was talking to one of the gender doctors who, who is not insane about all of this, and he said to me, look, you know... He said, I think of all of these people as patients, even the ones who aren't patients, he said. And then he said to me, and patients gonna patient. Like, these are the things that patients are going to do and things that patients are going to say. The point is the doctors are meant to not go along with it. Of course, these girls are going to come in and say, I feel I really should be a boy. I want this cut off. I want that cut off. I want these drugs. Of course, the men are going to come in and say to you, there's a woman inside. I need her to be released. You're meant to know better as a doctor. You're meant to be working. You know, you're meant to have the theories behind you. The patient's going to patient, and you're meant to doctor. And yet they've abdicated responsibility. Totally so many of them. authority um, and responsibility. Last thing, I just want to ask you along these lines because um, you, you brought it up, and just I want it's it's striking me also the thing about the ubiquitous availability of online porn. And the extremeness of the porn that the, the mainstreaming of the most extreme forms of porn that that pre- previously would have been very rare and hard to find even in adult bookstores right would have been hard yeah. to find because I can remember when the only way to get porn was either to find your uncle's stash of magazines or to brave going into one of these places to purchase it and um, which was very 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 scary to do they were usually in terrible parts of town and so on and so forth and so you just did didn't have this stuff at such a young age at such volume. And it's, it's, it's people are only now starting to realize just how devastating an effect it has. I, I agree with you entirely that it's had the effect that you're describing, but it's also had even a more deeper, more profound effect in the sense that um, it's completely transformed the relationships between adolescents, boys and girls. So, you know, now, it, it, it's. I've just been paying very close to def- attention to how different my daughter's adolescence was has been from mine. So my adolescence was spent in the early '80s, right? Mm-hmm. And she's just now graduating high school. It is perfectly normal in her high school for a girl like her who is conventionally very attractive, has a very lively and appealing personality, to never date anyone throughout the entire high school experience. As a matter of fact. Almost none of her friends have dated, have kissed anyone, have any, and, and, and the reason is because the boys are undateable. Why are they undateable? <laughs> Why are they undateable? Why are they undateable? Because their mind, their conception of what dating and, 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 and romantic intimacy is, is all derived from pornography. Poor boys. And so they have, no, they have no realistic conception, right? That, yeah. that, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the innocent, sweet, and very powerful when you're at that age, initial sexual fumblings that you have with, you know, your first girlfriends and boyfriends, et cetera, they're just not having them. Yeah. They're not having yeah. them. Their imaginations have been hijacked by and jaded by, made rendered jaded by, by pornography. And so it, it is fundamentally destroying the initial grounds on which sexual relations are built, right? And thus, and thus romantic and intimate relations. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, so I, catastrophic. I, I can't believe that we're not doing something like this is worse than the coronavirus, in my opinion, right? Because I, 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 yeah, I, I think you're probably right. I, I sort of feel I, I'm not willing to quite say that just because I haven't seen it exactly. The one that I would definitely add to it, if I might, was the way that a girl who's already thinking she might want to opt out of being a girl, this is just possibly the clincher for her. She's not being forcibly kicked out of it, right? I mean, it's just like... She just just wants, she just wants, I know, I want no part of this. I don't want to be seen that way. I don't want to act that way. And and then, you know, modern feminism to sort of link back to something that we talked about earlier, like this sort of third wave feminism is so pro-sex work, pro-porn. And, you know, I'm I'm not anti-sex worker, but I mean, you know, the idea that this is empowering, you know, it's just extraordinary. And so, so that, those are the girls. And I, I, know, I know several young detransitioned women like this. You know, that was the point at which they just said, no, thank you. I'm having nothing to do with being a woman. Nothing at all. I don't want to be an old woman. I don't want to be a, an attractive woman. I don't want to be a sexual woman. I don't want to be any of those things. I don't even want to be a woman at all. And, and why, so- do you think that the, why do you think that the existing, I mean, now the communities, now the, now the existing lesbian community is under real duress from this yeah. But why do you think up and coming the, the the existing lesbian community wasn't something that they felt that they could go into where they would now not be subjected to all of that? Well, the lesbian community has been under fire far longer than probably either you or I as non-lesbians understood. I mean, you know, Mitch Fest came under fire absolutely yonks ago. So lesbians have been shouting and screaming about this for ages. It's just that no one was listening because, you know, so lesbian spaces just all kind of went and now, I mean, I'm told lesbian dating sites are basically a third men now. So, well, yeah, no, and, and, and that they're, that the lesbian bar scene is almost completely yeah. right up. Yeah, I mean, the gay, the, I must say, gay bars are closing as well. So, you know, there's probably interesting sociological. I didn't realize that. I didn't yeah, realize. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I, I mean, th- the thing is that online dating has taken away the main reason why you needed a specific gay yeah. place to go. You don't need that to meet each other anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. separatism has maybe gone out of, of style a bit. I mean, yeah. you know, to whatever extent. Yeah, I should. If yeah. I have Jane, yeah. on, if I have Jane on again, which I'm sure I'll do, I'll ask her about this because I wasn't aware that with that 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 lesbians were under such duress within the progressive civil rights community prior to the gender identity trans stuff. I thought that this is relatively new. So it was, so the, the assault the, on, the, on lesbians. No, the assault has been going on for lesbians for 20, 25 years. Yeah, I, so, I was not aware of, yeah. Yeah, no, it really has since the mid-1990s. So the first places, so if we think back to these rather aggressive male people who feel very strongly that there's a woman inside and that they've, they've just let her out, or they're heterosexual, they're now lesbians. And they wish to be... Um, acknowledged as women. I mean, one of the things that Ray Blanchard, who's the guy who coined the expression autogynophilia, said relatively recently on social media is, you know, why is it women who are attacked so much by trans activists and not men, when it's actually men who commit pretty much all transphobic violence? Well, the reason is that women have what these particular trans people want above everything else, and that's validation. So that's why they specifically want into women's spaces it's no, no good to say to them third space because what they want is the validation. They want to work as rape crisis counselors. I mean, Vancouver Rape Relief had, you know, years and years long legal challenge to try not to accept a trans rape counselor. They ba- lost. No, ba- no, 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 Vancouver Rape Relief won that one, actually. They won't I have thought they'd been defunded. I just read this. Yeah, that's, that's vengeance. They won um, in 2008. They won in the Supreme Court. They never got their costs and they've been under attack ever since because of that. 
But so why would you want to be a rape counsellor in a rape crisis centre where they don't want you to be a rape counsellor, you know? And they give you a reason that's quite a plausible reason as well. Like these people have just been raped by a male and you're a male, you know? Well, it's because you don't want to accept it. You want to force the validation. You're not getting it, so you want to force it. Well, I'm afraid that's true for lesbians as well. Yeah. And that's a whole other development that we can maybe talk about on another occasion. I'm just marvel at this notion now that it's not just that others must in public spaces tolerate you and treat you properly, but that they have to agree with you and affirm you and all of that. That strikes me as a development that's new and rather rather strange um that it's a strange expectation this is a very strange expectation it's a very illiberal expectation i mean the the, one of the bases of a secular liberal society is that we have a common space in which you know we understand that rights may collide yeah and we we try and work those out but also we just we you know i I mean i do my best to accommodate my religious colleagues but they understand that i you know if they ask me i'm just consciousness is private one's consciousness is private and and in his own prerogative yeah and you can say you know i respect i respect your right to be jewish i respect your right to be christian i'm neither of those things and you must respect my right not to be you know it's mutual right 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 well helen this is wonderful um Thank you I for having you me for on. hours longer, but I uh, appreciate you you talking with me for this long. Maybe we can do it again. What's the timetable? What's your timetable with regard to the book? Do you have a title for it yet, or is it still? I, I, have, the, I have a work. Well, I have a working title, and I've written the um, first chapter and outline. And have you and already so done I, all the research you want to do, or I've done most of it? But the thing is, I've been doing it. I was doing it for the last two years. Really, I got quite obsessed with this subject and was doing it in my spare time and time that wasn't spare. Um, I just got back from a trip to Canada because Canada is gender crazy land. You know, I went to Vancouver and visited Vancouver Rape Relief and I went to Toronto and talked to various the gender doctors there who had done all the, you know, the seminal research that I wanted to cite from there and loads of other things, you know. And also, by the way, just one thing I'll fit in, yeah. I talked to a bunch of women who are fighting back against all of this. So it's happening most of all in the UK, but people, women elsewhere are watching and learning and are very admiring of, of this, you know, reality-based, this resurgence of reality-based feminism, because I hope we'll see that. We what's are your, hope, what's your hopeful guess as to when you think this thing will be done and off to a I hope I'll have, I hope I'll have written it by the end of this year. I will have written it by the end of this year. Um, you know, I have some interest in, the, in, in publishing. I haven't got a, a contract lined up or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Helen, thank you very much, and um, I will uh, see you on the internets. And, yes, you uh, will indeed. Maybe talk Telling to people you. that male and female are <laughs> real categories <laughs> and meaningful. Right. Yeah, oh, God, where are we? I'll, when, I, when I'm further along and when I've got my publishing contract and my date, I'll come we'll back to you. We'll talk again, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Thank Daniel. Thank you so much. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.